Hello, everybody, and welcome to this latest edition of the John Sando podcast. My name is Daniel Lee, and I'm a historian of the Second World War at Queen Mary University of London. It's a great pleasure to speak today with Roland Phillips about his gripping and superbly written new book, Victoire, a wartime story of resistance, collaboration, and betrayal, out now with the Bodley Head. I'm sure that Roland will be familiar to many readers after the success of his wonderful last book. About the Cambridge spy Donald Maclean, that came out in 2018 under the title "A Spy Named Orphan." In his latest book, Victoire, Roland picks up one of the central themes of his first book, that of betrayal. He's interested in probing the choices and circumstances that might lead a man or a woman to betray their country. The context for this book is Nazi-occupied France. And the hero or anti-hero is Mathilde Carré, who had spent the best part of the 1930s earning a modest living as a schoolteacher in the Sahara Desert in French Algeria. So, to get things started, Roland, could you sketch out for us Mathilde Carré's early life, and in particular, how did she go from being a nondescript schoolteacher at an outpost of the French Empire to assuming such a major role in the French Resistance? Mathilde, I think, ran entirely on emotion, and um, once she came back from uh, Algeria at the, the beginning of the war, she was married to a teacher uh, called Maurice Carré, uh, who decided to. She was a, she was an unfulfilled person. I think she was a very lonely child. She was brought up by her grandparents. She felt um, her parents. Paid her no attention,、um, and she got married very young. Went to Algeria, as you say, and when the war started,、um, and she suddenly thought, "Now is my chance to to be noticed." Really, she became a nurse. She was incredibly brave. She was one of only three of her cohort of eighty who who nursed throughout the、um, fall of France. Uh, battle for France.、Uh, she then decided her husband was a coward because he left to fight in Syria rather than defend、uh, his home country.、Uh, she had an affair with a man she was nursing, fell pregnant, suddenly felt now my life is going to be fulfilled. I'll have someone to love unconditionally. Her child. Then she miscarried. France fell.、Um, She was in complete despair and was about to throw herself off a bridge in Toulouse, when she suddenly thought, "No, I will commit a useful suicide. I will become a second Joan of Arc." So she was always sort of, I suspect, we might now diagnose her as as possibly slightly bipolar. She had these terrific mood swings, and um, she. Um, So she had this revelation that she was going to save her country.、Um, didn't quite know how. Was in a restaurant three days later in in Toulouse,、uh, when her eye was caught, as her eye was often caught by a 
dashing, energetic man, um, by a figure who took accosted her outside the restaurant and said, in appalling French, he was Polish, could you teach me French? So she went every day to his hotel to teach him French. They quite soon became lovers. And after a time, he he was called Roman Chanowski, though he was under a pseudonym. He told her that he had a vision for an entirely new sort of intelligence network. Dozens of small cells, uh, all none of whom, whom would knew who was at the top of the... They'd all report to one person. And from this, he would... Uh, map the whole of France for the Allies, for the Poles and the British in England. and But he needed her help to organise it. So quite by... T- but what was so brilliant about her? Could you just, like, I mean, did she come from this m- wonderful family? Did she have lots of languages? Was she well-educated? Like, what, what could you just trace that side of her life? She, she was very uh, courageous. She was very both very efficient and very courageous. And exactly the perfect combination you need to to run an intelligence network. In fact, she was so courageous, she was uh, foolhardy at times. There was one occasion when the network, which was called Anti-Allier, which our spies in England said early, set up in November 1940. Very, very quick they were to set it up. Um, And our spies, MI6, said this is our only... Uh, reliable source of information from occupied France. You have to remember there were no, you know, the Dunkirk had happened. There were no, we had no spies in place at all. Uh, SOE hadn't been started, and so they were reporting back on where the bombs were landing, with the whole all the uh, arrangements of the order of battle in France, where the Luftwaffe planes were taking off from, and so on. One time, Mathilde went to. Brest to report on the uh, bombing there and decided again in her wonderfully impulsive way that um, she was so admired uh, the plucky Londoners standing up against the Blitz that she would launch her investigation uh, or make her inquiries in a British accent. Not surprisingly when she got back to Paris there was a uh, Gestapo man waiting at the Gare du Nord saying we understand you've been in Brest making inquiries and so on but she had total charm too and she charmed her way out of the situation they ended up having dinner together it turned out he had an Irish mother and so on um, so I mean, one her of the quality thing... sorry mm. no I was just going to say one of the I, things I... I really liked about your book is you know this is the story about somebody who nobody's ever heard of really it's really an intimate portrayal of one sort of ordinary if you like woman's desperate attempt to regain a sense of herself of her agency under these really cataclysmic these di- in a dire situation and what's what's so yeah. fascinating for me and why i think so many historians are going to really love your book is because this is a woman who joins the resistance in 1940 this isn't somebody yes. that comes after D-Day in June 1944, when everybody knew what was mm. going to happen. That's what makes this such a wonderful story. Absolutely. And and her, her Anter Allier itself only lasted a year. It only lasted till November 41 before it was betrayed, quite by chance it was betrayed. Um, and that was another great turning point for Mathilde we'll come on to. But so this period of being a top spy was 
did indeed cover, as you say, pre-resistance before SOE's involvement, and uh, they were vital. And, and yet, as you say, nobody's ever heard of her. Yeah, so it's so, yeah. so could you give us a sense? I mean, we've got so much to talk about, but could you just give us a quick sense of what her daily routine might have been like in 1941? So she, um, she and Roman shared a flat. They were no longer lovers. Um, they decided they had to live together as brother and sister, as they put it. Um, they shared a flat to, at the beginning of 1941. They would get up, uh, have breakfast together. They They ended up having to stop sharing a flat because their landlady was so suspicious of what was going on um have breakfast together and then she would set up she'd set up three post boxes around as they were called uh, around paris which would be emptied by her she'd um, scurry round their reports of her she always wore a a, a, a red hat was a sort of signature. She walked very, very quickly. Um, she would scurry around, empty the post boxes, talk to the Paris agents, and then take this material back to the flat where it would be distilled and encoded. In the early days, um, it crossed the border on flimsy bits of paper screwed behind the sign of a in a first class lavatory. Well, that's important. Um, Tell us more about yes. what do you mean? What do you mean the border? Because a lot of our, our listeners might not be aware of the border. Of course. So uh, occupied France was really north of Tours, um, at the south of, of, of the demarcation lines, it was known, uh, was Vichy France, which was still uh, supposedly the it was the independent French state. Um, but increasingly, as the war went on, it, it had to fall more and more into uh in along the lines of what the nazis were asking them to do and indeed in 1942 um uh the nazis took over once the war in north africa was was going against them they took over the whole country but at that point occupied france was only the north so why was um, she going why was she encouraging people to go to the south at that time why were they going on these so, missions so messages could be got out uh, across the demarcation line and into neutral Spain and then back to Britain that way. Um, so, the, the, uh, so this was a, a route for, which, which took a long time. Uh, it could, could take weeks for a, a message to get back to Britain, which um, at some points um, would have been disastrous. I mean, there was one moment they did eventually get a radio link and then more than one radio link. And their greatest um, near coup was when they had, they had spies in the, in the railway network and they heard that Hermann Goering was taking a train and were told the route and um, quickly banged off a Morse code signal to London, which unfortunately sat in someone's in-tray until it was too late. But so once they got the radio... They didn't have to record things on uh, bits of flimsy paper and, and set up a, a code using a Polish dictionary to transmit. So one of, one of the most sort of extraordinary moments I found in your book was how, in a sense, how just one or two little throwaway comments by somebody who was, you know, probably not even that involved in the resistance actually en- set, set, the tra- well, set the trail in place to sort of eventually uh, 
make 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 this resistance network fall apart. Just a one. I can't. Re- was it somebody sort of sitting was, in a bomb shelter or something? You. you it, were, it, were, it was a drunken docker in a pub in Cherbourg, uh, in a bar, who said that he had. Yes, you're right. Had been in in an air raid shelter when this woman uh, he was sitting next to started asking him odd questions and. Um, the drunken docker was simply telling this the German in order to be bought another drink. The German um, thought he better report it to the local Abwehr military intelligence, who normally would have taken no interest at all. But as it happened, just at that moment, the Abwehr were a bit of a joke in Paris. The Paris Abwehr, a bit of a joke because they hadn't caught any spies. So the whole thing sort of mushroomed from that. Yes, and the collapse of this mighty network it had between 150 and 250 agents at any one time uh collapsed because of this drunken man after the price of a drink from a german right and so yeah. so what we see is this this quite formidable character i mean we haven't even said what what, what was her, what was her name at the time what name was she going by uh victoire yes she was oh sorry in the early days she was called la chatte um was 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 her nickname because she she moved silently like a cat. Yes. So we're talking yes, about well. quite a formidable sort mm. of, you know, it's like like Virginia Hall, like someone who would really sort yes. of would have gone down sort of in post-war resistance history as as a, as a total leading, like a real hero. Had completely had this drunken docker not opened his mouth. Yes, and the the chain of events that followed. I mean, this all happened over Antarallier's first anniversary which was a terrific cause of celebration and there were messages on the BBC from London congratulating them and so on Um, uh, but two or three days later because of the drunken docker um, Mathilde was uh, arrested on her way to see to the headquarters of the organisation she was arrested and this was uh, uh, the, the well, I suppose the issues that come up at that point are at the heart of my book because um, she was, in fact, arrested by a man, a lowly figure. He had been a, a military policeman until he was brought in to translate on the, on the Antralier case. And he became, he was called Hugo Bleicher, and he became the great um, spy hunter in France of uh, for the Abwehr. And he... Um, he didn't believe in, even though by this time, November 41, they were shooting um, uh, any resistors of this kind out of hand. He, he came up with the idea on his own of turning her. Uh, and so he, she spent a night in prison and he basically said to her, either you work for me or I shoot you. And, and, and this is, I think, the the core of one of the things I'm trying to explore is what would any of us do in that situation? What would we do to survive? And so many of the agents who were turned, the Antaralia agents even, um, immediately they were arrested, said, I'll, I'll work for you, you know, or I want to keep my job. I mean, and in occupied France, in order to keep your job, you would have had to have a degree of collaboration and so on um so i think it's not as clear cut as it is 
perhaps now 75 years later, um, the whole notion of collaboration. But Mathilde's greater crime was on the day she was released from prison and agreed to work for Hugo Bleicher and keep keep the network alive as a double network, uh, con the, the, the Allies, uh, she slept with him too. That he, he took her back to headquarters and and she later said, and I can believe this, I was completely numb. I didn't know what was going on. You know, I went along with this. And um, that, uh, in the eyes of the French after the war, perhaps was her greater crime Absolutely. Than, than the collaboration. Yeah. So she then uh, began to work for the Abwehr as the virtual prisoner to begin with, was was called Agent Victoire. She's... Uh, they sent messages over her name to London saying the network's betrayed, but I'm all right. Um, and this is November 41. Uh, I'm all right, and I'll carry on transmitting. And then they were putting out misinformation. And this was, I think, the first great um, double cross of the Second World War. We, in England, the double cross committee was up and running and, and running double crosses back to the Germans. But this was the first time the Germans... Uh, uh, came up with the idea as they saw it. Yeah. I mean, this part of your book really reminded me of the work of John Sweets when we think of his amazing book from, I think, probably 30, 40 years ago, Choices in Vichy France, when, you know, he just mm. looks at the town of city of Clermont-Ferrand, just really looks yes. at some of these choices that ind- groups and individuals had to make under these extreme yes. situations. And or the sorrow and the pity. Absolutely, yes, exactly. absolutely. Yeah. Mm. So I really mm. did, I felt like as I was reading your book, I thought you did such a good job in that particular section of treating her so fairly, whereas I think a lot mm. of perhaps French people after the war wouldn't have been, wouldn't have been as uh, generous as you. Um, yeah. Moving on a little bit, because I know we, we've got a, we, you know, mm. such a brilliant book where there's so much more still to cover. Just give us, again, a sense of what was her strategy during these sort of this... I mean, when I'm thinking of this period, it is such, you know, the end of 1941. America's not even in the war yet. Mm. Obviously, everybody knows that Germany's going to win the war and that in a few mm. months' time, the, 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 the Germans will be in Moscow, etc. So, you know, Quite. What, what's actually going on in her head? Does she have a strategy at this time? Is she betting on a particular horse? I think she is, I think she's surviving. And I think she, this is the way her her dreams are shattered. She's not a second Joan of Arc. She's not uplifted as she scurries around emptying the post boxes and sending the messages. Um, and I think she's just getting by. Um, she knows um, she's done wrong. There's a sort of numb in 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 everything I read about her, including her own writing. She goes sort of numb, and she just goes through the motions. She's she's led around by Bleicher, told to do these things. I mean, she later said, "I was only biding my time to get back on side," and that may well be true. But there's a, from the high emotion. Um, from the beginning of the war till her arrest, we now have a period, I think, of, of numb flatness for uh, about two months um, before she sees the opportunity of salvation, which she seizes with both hands. And this is possibly her greatest, I mean, her greatest act. I think she 
uh, saved the beginning of the resistance. What happened uh, was that there's a man called Pierre de Vomacourt, uh, who was uh, SO, the first French agent to be parachuted into France from SOE, uh, with a brief to test out. Um, there were various small networks, but he was going to try to bring them together to form what became known as the French Resistance. And he had uh, between ten and 25,000 followers at his command. But uh, his radio operators kept being killed, betrayed and killed. And he heard through a Paris lawyer that uh, the Antaralier radio had been saved by uh, Mathilde. So he formed up to her uh, and said, I need to get to England, I need to get messages to England, the whole resistance is hanging on this, uh, can you help? And she, uh, under orders from Bleicher, who couldn't believe his luck, he was now about to have the entire nascent resistance in his clutches, um, went along with this. Um, and then the second great turning was when he asked her to produce some documents for him, um, which she did, which were unbelievably good forgeries um, because they were, in fact, the real documents. So that got him suspicious. He got suspicious about um, his agents being unable to get into Saint-Nazaire, where the Scharnhorst and Gneisenau were being docked, and he thought, hang on, something's funny here. Anyway, he decided to confront her, and um, this is now in January 42, and he said, you're working for the Germans, aren't you? And she took an incredible risk um, to get back on side and said, yes, I am, but I don't want to. And he, Pierre de Vomcourt, had to decide, do I kill her? That won't help anyone. I've got to try and turn her and trust her. Um, so this was her second turning, and um, she was then, having been a double agent for two months, a triple agent, and there's almost farcical series of events follow as as they, um, she she has to get him to England. I mean, the the radio has to get him to England. He can't tell England that she's working for the Germans and so on, and so on. Finally, after sinking boats and so on, they disembark they embark from Brittany on a Royal Navy motor torpedo boat and she arrives in England and our SOE and our spies say who on earth is this you brought with you <laughs> but and, I, I do um, want to ask you about yeah, that but yeah, before, I think it's really yeah. important you you mention in a little bit more detail first about mm. because you know this is something that really comes back to haunt her later about some of some of the actual incidents that take place in this period of sort of November December 1941 just could you just give us one or two little examples of the sort of work she would have done for the Germans at that time yes so what she she would have done uh, as the Scharnhorst and Gneisenau, the two greatest ships in the in the German navy, were in uh, being repaired in 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 um, Saint Nazaire, and uh, she would have if she'd been at Antralier, she would have sent found agent that the agent local agents would have told her what sort of state of repair they were in so that the uh, RAF and the Navy would know exactly when to launch their attack. In fact, she was sending messages 
dictated by the Germans, saying there's no news at all of when they're going to escape. Other um, intelligence networks were saying they're going to be ready soon, they're going to be ready soon. But in London, we so trusted her that we went with her messages and uh, and missed the opportunity to to capture these ships. So that's both an example of how well she was trusted and the danger of the misinformation. And I suppose another thing that comes to mind from that section of your book is very chilling, actually, is the way in which she would so effortlessly betray some of the former people with whom who, who trusted her. Absolutely, yes. And, and she... They knew, the Germans knew exactly who they were, the people, because they got all the, the, the records. Um, but at the same time, it's chilling when she's taken round. She's made to make lunch dates with them. And as soon as they sit down, the Gestapo burst in and take them away. Um, and for the Poles in particular in the network, it, that goes very, very badly. They're all incredibly badly treated. Um, and many of them die in, in, in the camps. Um, but it is, and that's, I think, what I mean by the numbness, that it, it's this, this sort of awful routine of, of mm. betrayal and, um, uh, and, and, and putting out the misinformation. And it, it's, it, it really, it sort of hurt to, yeah. to write about it in a way, because it, it's so not what she was about a few months earlier. Right, and I suppose, really, that's what everything comes down to, that short six to eight week period, November, Mm. December, 1941. Uh, Everyone has forgotten all the amazing work she had done beforehand, the danger danger she had put herself in working for the resistance. So here we are, Mm. February, 1942. She finds herself in England at a time that most people, most resistors in France hadn't even joined the resistance yet. Absolutely, and already yeah. her, you know, the 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 die has been cast. Like we know how we we as a as a reader, we sort of have a sense that things aren't going to get better for her in England. No, no, because of course in England, although she said uh, she told our spies everything, she was debriefed and debriefed over and over and over again because we couldn't quite believe that someone who'd worked for the Abwehr could could be on side and and we had this potentially very dangerous woman in london she was by now de vomcourt's lover and he was refusing to go back to france without her and and that was very very um complicated and difficult for these um men who didn't know quite how to deal with it um so mean she was let let loose on london she had a huge expense account um but we could not and she begged to be useful as a spy, but we obviously couldn't contemplate having anyone as a spy who'd worked for the Abwehr. Um, so there is, as you say, this sense of nothing good can happen to her. And indeed, uh, when de Vomcourt does eventually get dropped back while her radio is saying he's still in London, as this information, and then we stop hearing from him and eventually have to assume the whole cover has been blown... Interestingly, de Vomcourt never blows her cover and the Germans don't know till after the war um, whose side she was on, just as we didn't know during the war whose side she was on. But so then there's this terrible series of meetings which are 
uh, documented in extraordinary detail when we have to decide what to do with her to send her back she'd probably be killed she must have been blown give her free french they would take a very dim view of her because she'd work for the advert we just didn't know what to do and in the end in the late summer of 1942 um, we interned her in uh, in Aylesbury and then in Holloway and she spent the rest of the war in misery, mm. being surrounded by um, female Nazi sympathisers and spies who assumed she was one of them, which she wasn't. She and 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 it was a ter- we didn't allow her any visitors, um, and it was a really terrible existence for her. I mean, one of the things I keep. I kept sort of thinking about in the book, and I'm not sure if it was deliberate because you want to plant this seed, is would she have been treated differently if she was a man? Would the British... I do believe she would have been treated differently as a man. I mean, that's why I I stress the the men who dealt with her, um, who really didn't know what to make of her. And certainly I believe she would have been treated differently in France after the war if she'd been a man. And as I said earlier, I think her... In her, she was tried after the war. Eventually, we had to send her back. We knew it wouldn't go well for her uh, in the purge trials. Um, but um, they kept, in court, they kept coming back to this moment when she slept with Bleicher. And this was the uh, the capital case. And I think the purge trials were, were a very extraordinary um, phenomenon. I don't think... Um, I'd be interested to know what you think. I don't think effective um, in lancing the boil in the end, but then what could be. But the fact that the jury had to be made up of resistors, I mean, the trials were vital because the kangaroo courts before they were set up were so um, frightening. Um, but she, so she was judged by a, um, a group of resistors and well, can you just give only... us a sense of how she ended up being put on trial? How did that actually work? Um, well, uh, de Gaulle, immediately after liberation, de Gaulle announced the, these so-called purge trials where because uh, uh, towards the liberation and immediately after, basically the resistance were taking things into their own hand, taking events into their own hands. Um, they think, we think sort of nine or ten thousand people might have been murdered in summary justice um and so these trials were were set up and the the sort of blanket charge was intelligence with the enemy um which matilda undoubtedly had had carried out she didn't come to trial didn't come to court until 1949 beginning of 1949 um which was sort of the last year of the trials um and um, her trial only lasted um, four days, and she was condemned to death. The trial only the charge only took account of the period between her arrest and um, uh, and her leaving for England. So there was no question that um, her good work. Um, before and after could be brought in, though Pierre de Vomcourt, who spent the rest of the war in Colditz, did say she she saved my life. Um, so she was condemned to death, and um, 
and and it it's well, did it nobody defend me. her did none of the former people with whom she had worked in the resistance did none of them sort of come to they they didn't defend her they told their story some of them were more forgiving than others in fact i was very struck how many of them were forgiving or or didn't want to come to court because they said that's all in the past but because she unquestionably had uh dealings with the enemy it was a it was a foregone conclusion um and interestingly i think uh, i take one example of a trial of a man called René Bousquet, who was a, um, uh, who played a major, who was the chief of police in Vichy, France, and played a major part in the deportation of the Jews. His trial was both shorter than Mathilde's, and he was acquitted um, for reasons that couldn't be said in court, I, I think everyone suspects, because he knew people high up in the um, Vichy government and who were working their way up the French system. Too. Well, but he'd also um, also had a compromise. He so he, but he had also been in the resistance. So it's he had been it's in the funny resistance. That, yes, you but know, the resistance counts for some, but not for others. I really think for quiet that you're onto something when when it's just it's as simple that she had slept with a German man yeah. and taken him yeah. as her lover, and that for that was just a step too far. Absolutely, yes. And um, and if if you think about the you know the shaving of the heads and so on uh, in in the um, in the kangaroo courts uh, earlier after liberation, I mean I think it was much much worse for women. I think that it was, and and there were, I think tens of thousands of of children born in Germany of by French uh, prisoners of war who'd slept with German women, but none of them were you know, were were badly treated. And I think it's a... I do think it was much worse for women. Yeah. Mm. So, so what... I mean, look, I just find these court cases fascinating at the liberation mm. because, you know, there's some, been some real... I don't know if you've read, there's a book by Alice Kaplan about Robert Brassillac's trial, which was magnificent. Yes. And also, I know Julian Jackson is currently writing the Pétain trial. So there really is... Oh, I think your, yeah. this, the chapters in your book that deal with the trial really are bringing out mm. some... They're just so pertinent and so topical. Some of these questions that a lot of historians really are uh, thinking about at the moment. Just just give us a little sense of how, what was her sort of, her role in her trial. Did she have the opportunity to speak? Did, were any of her relatives um, interviewed? Her, in the, in and the, also her defence. Uh, what, was, what was her defence and what was her, who was defending her? Her, her lawyer was a, a remarkable man called Albert Nou, um, who had been a resistance hero himself. And he... He was very clear um, on the morality of collaboration and how it's it's not a simple thing, and we had to have compassion. And um, the game of being a double agent is is a morally very tricky one. So he he was very very good, and indeed um, his appeal to the president for a reprieve is a, is a marvelous document, both legal document and moral document to my mind. Um, so she was defended. She chose not to speak uh, at her trial. She could have spoken. Um, she I think put one error of fact right. Otherwise she. Um, there are pictures of her in the dock, sort of leaning forward, and, and one imagines her watching, what, letting it wash all 
over her. She'd had this period of high intensity and I think just realised it was a foregone conclusion and there was nothing to say, really. But her her mother, I think, said something. Her mother, her mother absolutely uh, had uh, defended her. In fact, her mother rather embarrassed her in her protestations of her, in her daughter's defence, and she didn't like that. Um, but her mother stood up for her. De Vomkor, as I say, stood up for her. Uh, many of the others said, what else could she have done? Some people gave devastating testimony of what had happened to them in the, in the camps. Um, thanks to her betrayal of them. But it was uh, inevitable in the context of the time that they would hand down the death sentence. Although you do make the point that not everybody, it wasn't unanimous. And you did even say that, you know, the fact that she wasn't, she reacted in a certain way towards her mother might have actually swung things. You know, people were like, what? You write in such a gripping way that, you know, our eyes are just imagining this poor young woman uh, sort of just sitting there and everybody in the crowded courtroom is watching her every move. Yes. Yes, she was, I mean, she was very, she was a celebrity. I mean, La Chatte, as she was then known again, uh, it was on the front page of the papers. Um, This this was the woman, again, because she'd slept with the Germans, I think, but this was the the daring double agent and so on. I mean, she was, people were, as you say, absolutely gripped by her. Um, and, And also... Very few were on her side, though, I would say. Um, and I think that certainly the newspapers exaggerated her crimes and betrayals, I I feel. Um, and it was it was never going to go well, that trial. No, no. And I feel that, you know, one of the good things when, that you do in the book is you, you really sort of keep reminding us of the complexities of Vichy France and the choices. Mm. And you, 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 I know you, you, you sort of bring in Sartre a few times and some of his writings about about mm. that particular period and how absolutely complicated life was. And it just kept reminding me of the film film uh, La Comme Lucien, how sort of easy yes. it is just to switch between resistor or collaborator. And that, you know, the lines is so incredibly blurred. Look, I know mm. we don't have much more time, but I'm sure people mm. will really want to know about what became of her after she was sentenced to death. So the... Um... About a day, so Albert Nou, her, her lawyer, wrote this this remarkable appeal to the president of France, uh, saying why she should her sentence should be commuted. Um, and the day before her execution, it was commuted. She was told she would get life imprisonment as well. They actually took a, account of her time she'd spent in prison in England. And she was released in 1954. While she was in prison, she channeled all this emotion and longing to belong and and love, unfulfilled love, that I that runs through her life um, into religion. She became very, very religious, um, and indeed wrote a couple of books about uh, uh, about religion. And when she came out of prison in 1954 she retreated from the world. Um, so much so that um, she gave one interview to a journalist, a British journalist, and otherwise nobody heard from her again. So much so that it was thought um, that she died in the 1970s, um, but I found her death certificate 
and she died in this century, but but she retreated from the world. The world had, the the human world had had not treated her well in the end. She she'd engaged with it and and in a magnificent way, um, she'd betrayed it, and I think she just didn't want anything more to do with with humanity. So, how did you first come across her story? I first came across her story, but I was interested in in. Uh, in in people in France and and in this situation in the the ambivalence of the of the occupation, and I was reading a file in the National Archives in Kew uh, about Roman Chernowski, who uh, became a, a double agent who did was allowed to work for us, became one of the uh, double agents who who sent out disinformation about D Day, and in the middle of his file. Um, I found this critique of of La Chatte, as he called her, um, because one of the things we asked her to do when she was at liberty in England was write down everything she could remember, uh, everything she knew about her time at Antaralier. So when he arrived, he was critiquing it. And so I started following it up from there. That's amazing. And found some extraordinary documents in the French National Archives that I don't believe have been looked at since... Um, since the war. Yeah, I saw, I noticed you've looked at AJ39, but perhaps we're getting a little too technical now for some yeah, yes. which is one of my yeah. favourite files. But, yeah. <laughs> it, you know, this really is a tremendous book. It must have taken you ages to write, and you've clearly been to so many archives and read so many fascinating uh, sources uh, over well, the last... Well, I was, I was drawn along by the characters involved, most of all hers, and it, it just, I thought she's she's got such spirit and interest that I she drew me through it right and I you know hopefully now stories like hers like you you just use the magic word ambivalence you know these choices that people had to make hopefully now his not just Mm. historians but some students might also be interested in following some of these paths and looking more perhaps we need to turn our attention away from some of these sort of big resistors and big collaborators Mm. and just kind of look at some of these people in between and start to wonder what it was that made them do what they did. Well, that, that's what I was very struck by your book um, about Robert Griesinger, the SS officer's armchair. Again, how is a more or less ordinary man? How, how does the war treat him when, yeah, I mean, it's, it, it is... It's the real stuff of history rather than the generals, I think. I think, yeah. yeah, I think a lot of students mm. now, especially that sort of, we've got to turn our attention away from sort of Pétain, de Gaulle, Hitler, yes. Himmler, and let's, let, let's just look at, you know, what would I have done at that time? Yeah. That's what people Absolutely. are asking themselves. Mm. So yes. Ro- Roland Phillips, the book is called Victoire, A Wartime Story of Resistance, Collaboration and Betrayal, published now with The Bodley Head. Thank you. Thank you so much, Daniel. Thank you. My thanks, Roland and Daniel, to you both for going to the trouble of having and recording this conversation for us. Victoire, a wartime story of resistance, collaboration and betrayal by Roland Phillips is available from us at £20 and Roland has kindly signed book plates. Do let us know if you would like a copy of his book, either by calling us on 020-7589-9473 or email sales at johnsando.com. Daniel Lee's The SS Officer's Armchair in Search of a Hidden Life is also available at £20. Thank you once again, Roland Phillips and Daniel Lee. (laughs) 